Uh, hello, everyone. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us again today. Um, another podcast. Today, we're inviting back uh, Mr. Jim Rivas and Mr. John Kindervag. Uh, we've had them on the show before. Uh, if you can give their podcast that we recorded before a listen, we won't get into their backgrounds. I'm sure everyone knows who they are by now and knows what Zero Trust is. Um, but I, I guess it's good to have you back. Thank you very much. Um, we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into kind of the relationship between the CSA and, and and John yourself, because we spoke about it a little bit five or six months ago. And Jim, you alluded to the fact that this was kind of coming along and that the CSA were going to do stuff with Zero Trust. But I'd like to understand what have you done so far so our listeners can understand what you've done and also what you intend to do in the future. Sure, absolutely. Um, so we we started kicking this off in in March to get people going on this and uh, got got John engaged. And why we got John engaged, I think, is pretty self evident um, in that he's for the thought leader here. He. Uh, created this concept, articulated it very well. And then he's just been working, you know, pretty uh, aggressively to like get the the industry, get government, you know, get us all connected to each other. He's just like opened so many doors. I think he could be a matchmaker in a, in a future life. But um, so getting this sort of moving, getting um, like leadership engaged in this and on the grassroots side, we've gotten nine research work streams. We've got um, four modules of what we hope is going to be a pretty comprehensive training curriculum. We've uh, got uh, a, a group of uh, dozens that are doing item writing for the exam that we hope to have later this year for their certificate of zero trust knowledge or whatever we might call it something a little bit different. Lots of uh, different um, sorts of webinars. We did a, a virtual summit uh, back in November. Uh, and we've built our some some of the more fundamental resources in our resource hub. So we've got a, a, a good foundation. We got a lot of work going. You know, in in terms of where it's going, it's it's that we, we want to complete that research. We want to complete some of that training. We want to complete the examination. But this is like we've gotten so much traction in terms of it having the largest number of volunteers for any one of our research working groups. And, you know, we're seeing all, almost all of our enterprise members say they have significant zero trust projects underway that exactly where we are going to go and what are going to be some of the surprising things or things I'm not quite sure of. So I know of some enterprises that they are starting to want to do some demos and share and, and potentially we'll have some sort of an open source repository, get some JSON snippets and a lot of other things to help glue these things together. I think just a lot of sharing of use cases we're, we're going to have. Um, you know, maybe look at how this applies to very specific industries, all sorts of things. So we're going to kind of we're, we're, we're going to ride we're going to ride the beast and see see where it goes. But there'll be some things I think they're going to be kind of unexpected, but it's pretty exciting just because clearly there's just a lot of interest and a lot of sharing right now. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I've done your training. So I went through the ones that you've been that you've released already. And, and they're very good. I, I did the exam. And I think it's definitely for anyone listening. I think that's it kind of a good foundation um I'd, I'd like to thank you for involving me in the in the working groups i'm involved in a couple of those and helping to write the exam so that's quite interested and i know me and john are on a panel coming up talking about zero trust but i guess i'm going to refer to you as john k and you as john s because it's confusing having two people on the podcast but john k mr kindervag 
what why did you decide to kind of tie up with the CSA? I mean, obviously we spoke to you before. Um, we we know where you are with zero trust and you talk a lot about it, but what was it about the CSA and that relationship that kind of made you want to start that? Well, the CSA has scope and breadth, you know, it has a lot of uh, people involved in it, people who are enthusiastic, people who want to, to do stuff and, and, and learn and then uh, take things to the next level. And that's what zero trust needs to be. It, it needs to be this, this strategy that's taken to the next level and the opportunity to work with the cloud security Alliance uh, was something that was pretty sublime because look, so many of the workloads are moving to the cloud and there's a lot of misunderstanding about how you do zero trust uh, and especially how you do it in the cloud. So this is the perfect place to kind of level set. And after the president's uh, NSTAC report on zero trust came out, Jim and I uh, got together at RSA last year and and did an interview and we kind of, you know, uh, I've been saying, and, and a number of people have been saying, hey, this report is authoritative on what zero trust is. We can now just take this as a foundation for a launch pad to do other things and get people to go out and build these environments. And and he was in total agreement. And so it, it's, you know, we don't have to have any more discussions about what zero trust is. We need to have ways to motivate people to go out and do it and give them the tools to answer the questions that, that they have while they're doing it. Yeah, I think that kind of leads me on to my next question. I mean, when we spoke last time, I think it was six or so months ago, I was going to events in the UK and nobody had really heard of Zero Trust or, or didn't really understand it. And, and it was certainly, it wasn't gathering any motion. But I'm going to an event in a couple of weeks and they have a whole Zero Trust area there's a theater for zero trust talks there's zero trust vendors and i don't want to discuss what vendors because i think it's a strategy and not a product um but I, I i can certainly feel here in the uk that it's it's growing people are talking about it and certainly at kind of the technical or technological level at the architecture level but I, I guess my question to you is is it grown even more in the US since it has six months ago? And is it now being talked about at kind of the higher level or the CIOs and the CISOs and the boards now talking about zero trust? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it's grown into this international movement of something that that I could have never imagined when I wrote the first report in 2010. So that's pretty gratifying and it's extraordinarily humbling. But you see that the president of the United States has issued an executive order about it. Uh, then the Office of Management budget has come out with guidance. Uh, you you saw the NSTAC report, which is through CISA, the, the cybersecurity agency of the United States government. And as a result, you've seen other governments issue reports or directives or mandates about it. Uh, Philippines, Singapore, Netherlands are some that come to mind. So this is a very, very global movement. And and that's good because now we're going to start speaking the same language and have a little bit of the same incentives moving forward. And it's the only thing that has both uh, tactical needs, you know, tactical uh, usage, but strategic resonance. And so it brings the business together with the, the people who are doing the cybersecurity work. And that's something that I'm very proud of. So how do you see, um, obviously, with the executive order by Biden and it, the the mandate going down to the government agencies, 
how do you see that impacting the the enterprise? Um, is there going to be a cascade effect from those uh, the executive order down to, you know, well, there, suppliers there already, of, of the government? Yeah, there already has been uh, a, a cascade effect because think about who is the number one buyer of, of cybersecurity technology in the world. Do you want to guess on who that might be? It's probably the United States government. <laughs> probably the United States government. Good. Yeah, they're the biggest consumer of technology. And so now they have a, a reason to do that. That means the vendors are going to absolutely spin uh, their stuff, whether it's sometimes it's true, sometimes it's disingenuous to uh, to to try to get out in front of the pack and say, we're more zero trusty than they are, you know, which is kind of goofy, but it is what it is. But it still becomes a, a part of the engine that's driving zero trust forward. And and if when people really start to understand the strategic value and how it can help prevent data breaches and stop other cybersecurity attacks from being unsuccessful, you can see how we can actually win this cyber war by using zero trust as a strategy. Yeah, so, so how do you see, I'm going to, one more question, kind of a follow on to that. Um, obviously, zero trust is a strategy from a security perspective. You know, there's not a lot of debate there that it is uh, the right path. Um, but how do we turn that into a business conversation? How do we, you know, talk to the CEO uh, as they're dealing with this uh, recession, impending recession, or we're talking ourselves into one? How do we make zero trust a priority uh, in his mind or her mind, uh, such that you know they're like, hey, even in a in a downturn, a possible downturn, this is an area I want to invest from a business perspective. How do we make that argument? Step one, hey, during bad times, uh, the attackers don't run out of money, right? They're not going to cut back just because we're having problems. This is actually during our weaknesses when they're going to be be their greatest strength. Uh, two, this isn't any more expensive than anything that you're already doing. A lot of times it's reallocation of budget. And if you're going to be a, a modern company, uh, cybersecurity is going to be the 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 structure of your company you know your your company runs on it uh it is is controlled and protected by cybersecurity so i liken us to you know the the uh, engineers who build the buildings you know the structural engineers who make sure that they're not going to fall down yeah somebody's going to build uh columns and and doorways and windows those those things but they all have to be structurally put together with some sort of engineering mindset that is strategic for the goal of the building and uh, that's what zero trust does so i have personally never had any problem articulating zero trust to the highest levels of organizations i've sat with congress people and ceos members of boards of directors um, generals admirals it doesn't matter they all get it it, the struggle is to get the people who do the work to a understand it and b want to do something that's a little bit different because we tend to not like change as human beings. Yeah, I mean, that, to be honest, you 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 hit the nail on the head with what was going to be my next question because I've been having conversations with architects and kind of those people that design networks and and all that kind of stuff and trying to get their buy-in for zero trust when they've 
been doing something for the past however many years and may have done qualifications in that and may be comfortable with that and they've all gone out and got their CCNAs or whatever it may be, all of those other qualifications. And 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 to be honest, I was the same. I put a lot of effort into my career and built my career. And and I've said this on podcasts before. I felt that I've been responsible for making the problem worse by doing global network transformations and and not doing zero trust, slapping everything together, doing mergers and acquisitions, opening new sites with flat networks. And I sat down five or so years ago before I even really knew of zero trust and thought this isn't the right way of doing it. Everybody on this network is trusted. And my biggest concern was from inside a threat was if someone could get in my network, they they got everywhere. And that scared me. And I thought this isn't the right way of doing it. And I changed my mindset. But I, I, I mean, I'll get to a question in a minute. And, and then that, that okay. question is, how do you convince those technical folks that have invested their time and effort into their career to look at something that really is fundamentally almost the opposite of what we've always done? How, how do we do that? Well, you change the incentive structure. So that's what uh, President Biden did. He changed the incentive structure. He said, uh, this is what we're going to do. And so everybody's incentivized to do it. And then they go and they find out, oh, it's using the same technology. Uh, it's just doing it in a little different way. You know, I have a lot of people, well, you know, this is nothing new because we've always had least privilege and firewalls and all that stuff. But yeah, but you've never pulled it in to a strategy before. And th and that's the difference. Plus, the the design of it is inverted from how you always built, you know, your, your flat network. But uh, it, it's not anything that you as a, as a professional in this space don't have the ability to do. You just have to have the willingness to do it. And so, uh, you know, I move people's cheese and people don't like their cheese moved, right? Who moved my cheese? But I always give them three or four extra pieces at the end. So it's worth running the maze. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I, I guess let's pivot over, over to you again, Jim. Um, we spoke a little bit before about there possibly being a, a zero trust maturity model. And we've spoken with people about cyber insurance. And one of the things I've raised about kind of cyber insurance is if people could be measured against a zero trust kind of maturity, would that help give that information to insurance companies that could prove that a company was level two maturity, level three maturity, that kind of area and enable people to get maybe cheaper cyber insurance. I know that we talked a bit about maybe you doing it before. Is that something that you think the CSA are still likely to do, be able to measure people? And I know it's really difficult, but that's maybe why I'm asking you the question. Yeah. So um, we're, you know, we're looking really closely at what CISA does and I know they're releasing, I think it's next month, they're looking to do another um, revision to the zero trust maturity model uh, there. So, you know, we've been doing for years, we've been doing our STAR program, which, you know, it does take our controls framework and measures um, organizations, you know, their their adherence to that. And it's and and maturity is often a part. And this is this is what the certification bodies and the the auditors doing attestations, they they will measure that and you know, continuous 
improvement is is really important. It's it's something that I think is we're we're going to have to simplify this to take a look at um, how we can do this because when you think of zero trust as a strategy here, yeah. then you know how you how you measure the maturity of that. Um, we're going to have to find I think the the right collection of indicators. I'm very data driven, and you know we have seen that you know having thousands of organizations be assessed against our controls framework that there's there appears to be a correlation with fewer breaches and and adverse security situations there. So at a meta level, you can sort of make some of those statements, but we're we're still pretty mature. And I'm, I'm seeing like since we talked some cyber insurance um, or some some insurance organizations saying they're they're kind of wondering on the payouts that they're going to be able to do in cyber yeah. insurance as we as we see this area get more, um, um, you know, it's more breaches and getting more confusing. So I think we're going to be very careful about how we do that. But um, we are building a good um, a good collection of um, data on our um, star program. And I th I think as you start seeing some of these things, we're going to be kind of looking at from a cloud perspective. Okay, what are the major hyperscalers doing in terms of enabling zero trust, which we've got a lot of work to do? And then how can we show that the tenants, which can be very small organizations, would be benefiting from those things, which may like reduce some of this blast radius. Maybe it's confidential computing. Maybe that's going to be a piece that we look at. Hey, are they using that? Um, and and can we vet that piece of it? So so we'll see. In in the long run, I think we'll get there. And yeah. Jay, can I can I comment on that? Absolutely. Because when I was at Forrester, I created a maturity model for zero trust. It kind of got lost behind the paywall, but it is in that NSTAC report, so you can see it there. The secret to doing maturity and zero trust, and we do it all the time in my managed service, is you do it on a per protect surface basis. So the the problem that a lot of people have is they still think of this as a monolithic problem. We're going to do zero trust across all the entire company, and then they're going to look at these pillars, and they misunderstand the reason for the pillars, right? So the pillar idea came out of Chase Cunningham's ZTX framework, but he'd already worked on the zero trust maturity model. What the pillars show you are the technologies that you would use inside of a protect surface to uh, make that protect surface more mature. So what you end up doing in real life is uh, in the real world, because I do it every single day, is you take a single protect surface, say I've got a bank and I need to protect the SWIFT gateway. Well, I can calculate the maturity of the protect surface, the controls around that that system that, that is the SWIFT uh, part of that system. And I can see what its score is, right? It's uh, we take the five steps of zero trust uh, on one axis and the other axis is uh, a maturity level uh, one through five. And so you get a five by five grid and you, you know, the maximum score you can get is a, is a 25. And so what we see is customers when, because we're looking at the data and we can say, well, that's a, you know, and we're, we're actually setting the policy too. So, you know, maybe that's a 12 you'd say. And the business leader will come in, they'll get that report and they'll say, Swift, only 12. I need it to be higher. And so they'll put a project in place just to make that particular protect surface uh, 
greater and bigger. So the fundamental concept that must be in every zero trust environment is uh, the concept of the protect surface. If you don't understand that, and if you're not doing that, it's not a zero trust network. It's not a zero trust environment, right? And then if you want to be successful in turning that uh, protect surface into an entire environment that works in your in, in your uh, overall uh, organization, then you're going to use that five-step model. So again, what's happened in Zero Trust is I spent years and years and years making it simple. And now other people are coming in, people who, quite frankly, have never done any of it, and they're making it more and more complex. And why that is speaks a lot to how human nature works, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, we asked you in the first podcast that we had you on, where's the best place to start? And I remember you saying, it, it doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. And and certainly conversations that I've had with people uh, since then, there is a concern that this is too big a bite to take, that there's too much to change at once. And I keep kind well, of... Yeah, and there is, right? Yeah. It's too big of a bite to change. And so you just say, yes, it's too big. Take a smaller bite. Yeah. I mean, do you have kids? Right? If you have kids, you know, when they're little, they always try to... You know, no, take a smaller bite. Take a smaller bite. Yeah. That's all you... It's like you're talking to your kids. Take a smaller bite. You don't need to eat the whole donut at once. Take a small bite of the donut. It will last longer and taste better. And I think that's probably the most critical thing for people to understand is this is going to be a journey. And and John says it all the time that it's one step at a time, one bite at a time. You, you can't. It's not a magic wand. It's not a technology that you're just going to buy. It's actually a cultural shift and a strategy. And yes, it's going to take time and people are concerned about all the threats out there, all the cyber threats, and they're concerned we need to lock all of our doors straight away. But look at those highest risk situations. Look at where you can start. Do those maturity models. Look at your protect services. Come up with the ones that you believe are most critical and deal with them. And then take a step one bit at a time. Um, but Mr. Spiegel, well, I'm aware that I'm asking all the questions so, well, and, and I want to follow on with that one too. Go for just it. To, to, to finish that off, because our, our good friend, General uh, Gregory Tuhill, who runs CERT, um, who I, I talk to a lot and we do a lot of videos together, he always likes to quote Frederick the Great, who once said that if you try to protect everything, you protect nothing. You know, you just can't protect everything. You spread everything too small or too thin. So you got to figure out what's the important stuff that needs to be protected. And that's the whole reason for cybersecurity. Cybersecurity exists not so that we can all be employed, but so that we can protect things that are important from people whose intent is, is very negative and disruptive to our organization. That is the purpose of it, protection. And, uh, and, and people have lost sight of that in the past 20 years. The culture is so much different than when I came into it, right? The culture used to be very much about sharing and, and helping each other out. Now it's much more competitive culture. Uh, the culture used to be about, you know, getting some wins. Now the culture is about how do we meet compliance, you know? So, so we, we've kind of got away from our roots as cybersecurity professionals, uh, the old hacker ethic. We, we kind of need to get back to that, I think, a little bit. I want to kind of talk a little, well, get a, get a response on this one. Uh, we talked a little bit about the frontline 
engineers, the security engineers, the network engineers, and maybe they're not as um, willing to adopt a, a zero trust strategy or, or, or confused about it, um, as well as you know what you just mentioned there. Um, Want to get a take on uh, George Finney's book? So I know you were involved in his project. Um, I thought it was a, a very good way to explain zero trust, get it out to the masses. Um, have you seen a mindset change uh, since that book has been released uh, out in the public? Have, they, have people started to understand what zero trust is and what it is not due to the book? I think it's helped a lot. You know, I, my next call after this is with George. So uh, he's a very good friend of mine. When he sat down in my living room and said, I want to write a book about you and zero trust, I said, that's a silly idea. Uh, but uh, I said it would help him. I just didn't want to be the focus of it, right? And uh, so he he's done a good job of getting the the, the basic things in there in, in a way that there are some people who think of it as a uh, as a textbook for how to do it, right? When it's a novel that's supposed to make you think about wanting to do it. So. Um, so clearly he's done a great job in doing all that stuff and uh and it resonates people love the book i mean where was i i was in bonn germany uh, at the end of the year and i went into this meeting with a a mega corporation and there was a guy with the book and he wanted me to sign the forward page and because i wrote the forward for those of you who don't know uh and uh and get a picture taken, which is very weird to me. I mean, who, I, I never in my life would have imagined people wanted to get my autograph and get selfies, but hey, it happens. Uh, so yes, those people, then it can help understand it. But even that person misunderstood the fundamental issues of it, right? It didn't fully get there. And some of that had to do with the incentive structures of his organization. So if we can get the business to buy in, then the the technologists will do what what they need to do, but they'll find that it's a whole lot easier once they get started, right? They they won't complain once they get started. They'll have this moment of epiphany and go, "Why was I so opposed to this?" As one guy said to me, "We argued about it for more time than it took us to do it." It's a fun read too. I mean, it's something that I'm seeing CISOs tell me that they've like been re reading it. And we, we need more of that sort of storytelling and yeah. what we're going to do in, in our industry. And, and it's really helping on the business side. And, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, to, to John's um, points about, you know, you start, understand this strategically, but start like maybe tactically on these different um, projects, maybe start small. Right now, we're seeing a big wave of where we're seeing this adoption is this transformation where organizations are moving key systems into the cloud because it's it's harder to get the budget. It's harder to get the, the initiative, the impetus to do this if you're taking a system that's already in place. But if you're moving a system, it's like very easy to make the business case to let's do this and, and with a zero trust lens to build a strategy around it. So I have a question on the on the back of that. You obviously the CSA are doing this zero trust work, and there's the training, and there's the exam. But in my mind, that's a little bit more focused on, say, the architects or the engineering side of things. What have the CSA resource wise got for, say, the CISO or the CIO or even the CEO and the CFO in regards to zero trust? Have you got stuff available for them? 
And that's that's being built. That's um, so we have a, our CXO Trust Council, which um, are C levels that they they actually provide some input and oversight on what we should be doing from a zero trust perspective. So we are you always got to be careful on some of the education on the on the C level that you're not like talking down to them because these are very like experienced people and we're learning a lot from them. Um, we just had a conversation. I had a, a conversation with the CISO of like one of the most iconic financial services brands in the world on what we need to be doing for them in terms of zero trust. And he explained that this, the story they're going through is they need to get their crown jewels in the cloud. And so that crown jewel story ends up being a good way with that protect surface talking to the, the business, talking to the, the board of directors on how they need to do that. And so, uh, and, and, you know, they've engaged with the, the cloud providers and said, here, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to tell you what our needs are. And by and large, a very large cloud provider is saying, okay, out of your, your 50 needs, maybe we can satisfy 45 and the five, the other five are very important. And so, that's where they are going back to their executives to say, here's why we need to structure this with a foundation of zero trust, or we're not going to be able to like move this business. So that's the level of like right now of the conversations we're having and trying to turn that more into like executive white papers and, and education for that group. So it's it's coming, but it's it's definitely, there's just a lot of really interesting stories right now of people starting to embrace it. So we're, we're definitely in listening mode on that right now. And the, well, there's one work stream on the business value of zero trust. So I think as people, people have misunderstood that, they think it's gonna cost more, it's not. Uh, generally, it costs the same or less because you're using the same technology that you would have used anyway for whatever pro project you were doing. So the capex is is a little bit of a wipe. The the operational expense is much lower. Um, one of the biggest things that I discovered building them uh, was that the audit costs and the compliance costs were much lower, uh, and that um, it in it in it created a sense of teamwork because it broke down silos between organizations because everybody had to work together to do this. And I had one guy call me up and, and he he was pretending to be mad. And he, he's like, you and your zero trust thing, blah, 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 blah. He kind of reamed me out a little bit. And I said, what happened? He said, well, we had a, we had a network problem. And he said, you know, in the past, I'd have a few days to clean up my stuff so it didn't look like it came from me. But now everybody can know when it's my problem or somebody else's problem. It's so transparent. And then he laughed, you know, because he knew that was the right thing for the business. It was just he was having to be on his toes a little more. So uh, there's so many different things that that uh, uh, come out of that when you look at it from that particular lens. And I'll tell you, we spend too much time focusing on just the pure capital expenditure costs of these things. And we don't think about uh, what is the what is the consequences of the data breach? You know, the cyber insurance, the legal fees, all that kind of stuff. So if we have a strategy designed to stop data breaches, which I define as the exfiltration of sensitive or regulated data into the hands of a malicious actor, it's not getting into the network, it's taking stuff out. If we can 
uh, stop that to any significant degree, that's going to be uh, a cost savings that's almost incalculable. Yeah, and there's the human cost as well. I mean, there's the cost of of the ransom or whatever or, or the legal fees and all of that, but there's also the stress and the anxiety and all of that that's brought on to everybody in the company that has been breached. Um, but to go back to, to kind of why I asked the question about there being kind of C-level documentation and stuff is because there's a lot of talk out there about zero trust and a lot of the vendors are saying they're zero trust. And I think the problem with technical folks, and I'm generalizing, so no offense to the people that aren't like this, but they get excited by technology. I did. John did, no doubt. We we get excited by technology. So if someone says, come and buy this, this zero trust product, then it can be IT get drawn into that. Whereas I think if it gets if it comes down from above, it's more likely to be seen as a strategy because I don't believe it's a technology. I don't believe it's for the IT team or the security team to fix it. There are technologies that can help you with zero trust. They've existed for a long time, and there are some that are also new. You don't need to go out and necessarily buy new stuff. But if it gets pushed from IT or security, those are the products that I'm kind of familiar with failing. If you haven't got buy-in from above, then they come to a dead end. So I'm just thinking, I I refer to it like the channel tunnel between the UK and, and France. The French tunneled, the English tunneled. They need to meet in the middle. We didn't do such a good job when we built the tunnel, but that's kind of the top down and bottom up. I think if we get those approaches, that's where I'm likely, or I believe that projects are more likely to be kind of successful. Um, well, well I wish I had, sorry. I wish I had your accent because then I could. Uh, the story that I'm about to tell would be more enjoyable. But I was in London, uh, outside of London, uh, at a big, big company, and. Uh, doing a three-day design workshop for a company uh, brought in by the the enterprise architect team. So actually, the original research was very popular amongst enterprise architects because suddenly they had something new to architect, right? Yeah. Before, they hadn't. So enterprise architects was the sweet spot. But uh, we were on this in this thing, and, and two guys – very British guys, uh, you know, we should call them Clive and Jeeves or something like that. Uh, <laughs> you know, 10 minutes into this call said, this is garbage. This isn't the way Bleak Company has told us how to build networks. And you can insert whatever vendor you want in there. We're out of here, right? They just left. And everybody's just rolled their eyes, right? Well, maybe 20, 30 minutes, the managing director of the entire company comes in. I've heard about the, that you're doing a thing called Zero Trust. What is that? Can you explain that to me? Sure. Whiteboard, 10 minutes, he gets it. He's like, wow, yeah, this is something we absolutely should do. Uh, where, where's where's Clive and Jeeves? Shouldn't they be here listening? And everybody's texting these two dudes going, uh, you know, the, the big boss wants you. And uh, so, oh, the network down emergency boss. They'll be here in five minutes. And then he came sprinting down the hallway. You could hear him thunk, 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 thunk. And they sit down and they're out of breath. And he looks and he's like pointing at the diagram. And he's like, wow, this is a really good idea. Don't you, aren't you guys excited about this? And they're like, yeah, boss, we're all over it. And so in that moment, I realized how important it was to have the proper incentives to in order to get it done. Because there was nothing that was really going to impact their jobs other than, 
that's not the way we've always done it. And I mean, if I, I would, I would, I would have more money than Elon Musk if I had five cents for everybody who told me that that was the reason they weren't going to do zero trust because that's not the way we've always done it. Yeah. And I would always say, well, gee, the way we're, we're doing it right now is working so well, huh? You know? So, uh, I mean, that's, that, that that's a, the key thing. I mean, if we wouldn't have all, not, I won't say all of the problems, but there's an awful lot of IT and security issues that exist in today's world because we've always trusted. So it's it shouldn't be difficult to sit down and explain to someone you wouldn't have all these issues, and we could list them all. Like these are all the issues you get because Snowden, you've got trust. Snowden, Manning, right? Yeah, the Beyonce and Madonna of cybersecurity—they're the one-word <laughs> people, right? <laughs> I mean, whenever anybody tries to tell me, talk to me about the value of trust and use trust as a good thing, I want Snowden Manning, Snowden no. and Manning, Snowden and Manning, right? Because the the whole the the exploit technique was was the trust model, right? The the everything was the trust model. That that's the only thing that was involved in that. So uh, here's a secret uh, for for you to tell your customers and for people uh, um, out there when you're when you're in in the process of kind of designing or having these discussions get yourself a big jar and put it in the middle of the table and and write trust jar on it and so that's the jar that you put money in every time you use the word trust as if it's a good thing mm. right when you say well we're going to make this system trusted oh two bucks in the jar and then by the end of the day everybody will a have learned their lesson and b you can go out and to the pub and buy <laughs> buy your buy yourself a beer for everybody. So before I let Mr. Spiegel ask a question, I, I just want to point out that when I come to Dallas, I would like to meet you and I will definitely be taking a selfie and I will definitely be getting you to sign that book that I've got from Mr. Okay. So I just want to warn you that that's likely to happen. Um, but Mr. Come Spiegel. Soon. <laughs> yeah, let's let's transition to Dallas. Um, best brisket in Dallas. For yep. sure. Go on, Spiegel, then. No, I, John, uh, what, any recommendations on uh, food in Dallas? Dallas is a big food town because we don't have anything else going on here. Right? <laughs> we, you know, Jim's up in Washington where they have like somewhere there's an ocean nearby and mm -hmm. I hear they have mountains and you can probably go ski in there. Uh, all we can do is eat, right? So that's a, but there's a, there's like, I think I read more restaurants per capita than than any place else. A lot of restaurants start here because this was the home of Chili's. Remember back in the day, the first big chain restaurant. Yeah. So a lot of people made got learned how to be in the restaurant business through Chili's, and then they started their own uh, businesses out of that. And so you know the the, the history of of uh, at least not you know change style restaurants all all come here it, it's this is the headwaters of that kind of restaurant business well so what we're going to go to yeah where's your go-to what what if you have to go to one place in dallas what would it be um i take people to heart eight barbecue oh be, yeah because it's uh uh, I, you know, Rick, like if you guys know Rick Holland, if you've done a podcast with him, he, he lives 15 minutes from me, but we probably run into each other in places like London or Paris more often, but he's a big barbecue aficionado. And he will say, that's not the best barbecue. And I will say, yes, but is it the best barbecue experience? 
when I take people from Australia or the Netherlands or someplace else there, they're like, whoa, look at the size of this and look at all this food. And, you know, so it's you're giving people the experience, not just the food, because they're so overwhelmed by the experience. You know, they're 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 getting introduced into the world of Texas barbecue. So and we haven't let Jim talk. I see him trying to get in there a couple of times and. And I'm sorry, Jim. I apologize. Oh, I was he's he's my boss too, so I should have been nicer <laughs> to him. I was just going to say that in, in Bellingham, Washington, we got the most microbreweries per capita, and so you find that after you've enjoyed a few of those, everything tastes good. So I don't <laughs> recommendations, but definitely, uh, it, we've got so many. I literally have a microbrewing system in my garage. So nice. Yeah, it's it's sim similar in Portland here. Yeah, <laughs> I could talk about food all day, but uh, Hard Eight was the first place I ever went for Texas barbecue. Oh, um, good. Several of the last companies I've worked for have either had a site in Richardson or Carlton or Plano, and there's one there. So I've been a lot. I, I quite like that place. Um, but I guess let's we're, we're slightly running out of time. I mean, it's been great talking to you, um, but I guess let's let's circle back to kind of the, the CSA and the Zero Trust stuff. Um, when when do you think your exam is going to be released? Uh, we are we're targeting Q3. It could be late Q3 of this year that we, we should be able to hit that. And so um, make it pretty reasonable. Everybody has been working on it and been volunteering. They're going to get they're going to get it for free or grandfathered or something like that. But, um, yeah, I would encourage people to go check that out. I know I'm likely to know some of the answers because I wrote some of the questions. So that's always yeah. useful. Um, but Mr. Spiegel, before we get onto some kind of fun questions, and you cheat, I, we already, I about, thought we already started the fun well, question. You talked about food already. Um, I, but, I have to. Anything else you want to ask Jim or John before we wrap and ask some fun questions? No, I'm good, man. Uh, this was uh, another great podcast. It's it's great to see the movement on zero trust, uh, what the CSA is doing to promote it, um, how it's becoming a more of a business topic. I think that's the that's the big case that needs to be made for zero trust to be accepted. It, it's got to come down from the, the CIOs, the CEOs. You need to understand, to, you know, to John's earlier point around uh, a downturn, this is the this is the time to take a march on, on your competition, upgrade your security. And um, in a sense, also, uh, you, you touched on this as well. How do you simplify your network? How do you simplify your security infrastructure and do it in a way with a strategy associated with it? So um, good insights. Yeah, and and just one cherry on the top of that, right? Uh, why did the attackers attack Target on Black Friday week? Well, because the network was frozen, right? They weren't allowed to make any changes. No one was allowed to actually respond. And as a result, uh, a lot of people during that time, during the change freeze, they take vacations. There's nothing for them to do. And so it's the most vulnerable time. Imagine, you know, you, you announce... Uh, you know, here at military base X, uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to give leave to most of the soldiers. And so uh, it's going to be pretty undefended. And, uh, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, this is and well, of course, they're going to attack at that time. So they're going to start attacking now if they think that you're not paying attention to this. And this is a fundamental business issue. Cybersecurity is a business issue. Your business doesn't run if your technology doesn't run. If you are an airline, you can have pilots, planes, 
and, and, and passengers, the three P's of the business. But if your computer system is down, that plane is going to sit there, right? We saw that recently, right? Computer systems went down. Planes didn't get in the air. They didn't get anywhere. So this is actually the most fundamental business system that you have. Treat it like a business system, not like overhead, not like, oh, dang, we have to have this IT and computer people involved with us, you know. I mean, <laughs> don't do that. This is structural to your organization. It falls down without us. Yeah, I mean, you, you raised a really good point there. I I was listening to somebody at an event the other day, and it was a merging technology event, and, and, and she said that companies used to be able to run with, without IT. And I mean, I remember there being a situation where if an ERP system was down for an hour or two, nobody even noticed, right? It wasn't a big deal. We're talking 25 years ago. Now, 30 seconds of your email going down and that little disconnected thing comes up and the phone's ringing off the hook. So it's it's critical now. Companies, most of the companies across the globe will not do any business without IT and security sits on top of that and protects your IT if somebody gets in and takes your systems down, your business is going to go down. And that, and that's really, really critical to make sure that doesn't happen, right? But, John, I interluded. Well, yeah, I was going to say that it's that transition between um, IT being seen as a cost center and being seen as a profit center. I think we've seen that transition over the past uh, 10 years with digital transformation. And to your point, uh, you know, distributed applications, distributed workforce, uh, this is this is happening. So, you know, companies, they get that it's a profit center. It could be a competitive advantage. They're the ones that are going to have the leg up on their competition. So before we wrap, sorry, I'm going to just try. I saw Jim's lips move, so he just tried to talk. I was just going to say it's like the two words I hear a lot in all of these topics, um, resilience and agility. I mean, yeah. We've got to be resilient. We've we've got to move as fast as the business, faster than our competitors, and so that's that's to me that's that's the the real power of combining zero trust with cloud. Yeah. That's the way to do it. So, Mr. And, and, and one more thing, because you just said something that uh, I've been having some conversations with the cloud service providers. All companies are are multi cloud now, right? Yeah. And most of them are hybrid cloud, meaning they have stuff on premise and stuff in clouds. What is the one part of your IT organization that merges everything together? The security plane. The security plane is the thing that pulls it all together and unifies it. So you don't end up having to care about which cloud is this one in, because I have to write policy completely different. If I uh, have the right security controls that I have distributed into the different cloud architectures, then I have one management plane and that changes the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd, uh, so I do want to get to food questions um, okay. because that, that's my passion. And Mr. Spiegel stole the question with John on food about Dallas. Luckily we have another guest, Mr. Jim here. That, um, I'm going to ask you, Jim, and we have breakfast together, I think at Black Hat, so I know you like breakfast. Um, yeah. And I've, I can see you've got a globe in the back, and I know you've traveled all over the world. So my question is going to be, what's the best meal you've ever had, and why was it so good? Best meal I ever had was uh, Villa San Michele in Fiazzole, Italy. So Dick Clark, who was uh, used to be cybersecurity czar, 
recommended this when my wife and I were traveling in Europe, and it was so incredible. So Villa San Michele is a former monastery that was designed by Michelangelo and turned into a gourmet restaurant. And, um, you know, I love the carbonara. I loved like um, the, um, what else? I think it was Parmesan. There was a lot of traditional yeah. food done the best ever. I mean, you can't be going back to the old world and, and sitting, living in history when you eat. So that's yeah. it. Bet you don't have pineapple on your pizza. Um, <laughs> Mr. Spiegel, one final question before we wrap. No, I'm 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 good, man. We uh we we talked about brisket. That's uh that's been on my mind for a while. I, I'm I'm locked in. I need I need to get to Texas to get some brisket. So that's what we'll do, Dylan John. When we come over to Dallas, um, hopefully some point for our sales kickoff, we will take you to Hard Eight. We can take selfies with you. You can sign my book. And Jim, if you want to join us in Dallas, I'm sure you don't want to go there based on where you live. But if you did want to come and join us, Chase, I know, was going to come along. So we'll get a group of us together and we'll do dinner and we'll catch up. But I really yeah, Chase is actually a Texan. Yeah. Who... So he said he would fly home. Yes. He yeah. has to go visit his mother. You know, you have to do the mother thing. So I know that George is there. So we can get George. We can get a group of us together. We can we can have Texas barbecue. We can catch up. It'd be great. And you can have you had Rick Holland on yet? No. Well, he lives, he's part of our crowd. You need to get him on. So oh do, do an introduction. We'd love to get him on. Sure. Perfect. Is it Rick Howard? Rick Howard yeah. from Palo Alto? Rick, Rick Holland. Oh, Rick Holland, sorry. Yeah, he's the CISO of Digital Shadows, former uh forester analyst that's cool. how chase and and rick and i know each other from the forester days uh well uh, to be honest i appreciate you coming on i know you're both really busy people i i i, I do really appreciate it i know john appreciates it it's been great to talk to you no doubt we'll reach out at some point and get you back on or maybe we'll do an, a live event together if you do happen to be at rsa let us know we'll meet up um and again really thanks for coming on you awesome. bet I learn something every time I'm here with John Gay. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.